0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. So we are in our fifth and final Sunday of our series, Why I'm a Christian. So far we've talked about the existence of God, We've talked about the resurrection of Jesus, the reliability of the Bible, and the nature of doubt itself. And what we've been trying to do is get underneath a bit some of the things that we believe and hold core to our faith and talk about why we believe them, not necessarily what we believe, but why we believe them. And as we've been doing it, you guys have been sending in questions throughout the series. I want to say thanks because there were a lot of questions. You participated very well, and I'm grateful for that. That's always encouraging to me when we get a lot of interaction on the things that we do, such as questions that you guys can text in. So the original plan for today was we were going to take three of the questions that seemed the most pertinent, the most relevant, or the most repeated, and we would spend our time answering those three questions, have Three mini-sermons, so to speak. But y'all asked a lot of questions about one particular topic that, to be honest, I, I should have seen coming, but I didn't. And as I started working on how I would answer a few of the questions that all are about one bigger concept, one bigger idea, I realized I do not want to give a cursory answer to it, and it might be more beneficial to spend all of our time on just this one topic that we received a lot of different questions about. And so... Let me, uh, well first I'll give you a shameless plug. If you want to hear answers to some of the other questions, our other Midtown churches are going to do what we originally planned to do and answer a few of them. And so shameless plug, you can find that information on our website if you want to hear how they answered maybe your question, then you can go there for those churches. Let me read what I think all fall into one grouping, uh, some of the different questions that came in that are going to set up our topic for the day. So here we go. What is the creator-based view of evolution? dinosaurs and all what is the age of the earth when did humans come does midtown believe in the long day theory how do we explain seeing light from stars that are millions of years old if the earth is only thousands of years old no but seriously (laughs) did dinosaurs exist does the bible say slash infer that the big bang didn't happen Or should I believe that God used the Big Bang to create the earth? I basically want to know the best way to explain things to my kids. Good luck with that. (laughs) How does the Bible interact with the theory of evolution? This is not all. This was just a, uh, a sample of some of the different things that came in. It sounds like a bunch of different questions that are actually all in similar veins and thoughts. And I think maybe we would be best served today by a non-cursory explanation or quick hitter response, and I thought we might just take some time, group them all up, and let me try to give you some different thoughts that might be helpful as you seek to answer some of these questions. So our topic for today is Jurassic Park or Genesis, who's lying? (laughs) So before we get into some of the thoughts, the arguments, the views, the teams, let me give you a preliminary statement, and I think this matters, or I'll tell you at least it matters a lot to me. This is what I would call an in house debate. What I mean by in house debate is that this is something for Christians to discuss, debate, argue, potentially agree to disagree on. I'm fine with that. But if you're not a Christian, this is not where you start. This is not the starting point. You start with Jesus, the things that he taught, his life, his death. His supposed resurrection. You've got to examine Jesus. He's the center point of our faith. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. And if you come to believe that he is who he says he is, then we can move into all sorts of other controversial issues, subjects, and topics, and we'd be happy to argue and debate those. But this is just not where you need to start. I will also tell you up front, before I say another word, that our church does not have an official stance on this because we believe there are a few viable options. That's going to immediately anger some of you, and you're welcome. <laughs> the most important reason, and this is getting us into our, into our content, the most important reason why we think there are a few viable options is because of the issue of genre. So anytime you're interpreting any writing, genre is critical. Knowing what the genre is helps you discern how the author intends for you to interpret them. And to be a fair, faithful submitter to the authority of the Bible means we always have to do the work of trying to discern how the author means for us to interpret him or her. So as we talk about genre, let me give you an example. If, hypothetically, you came across something that I wrote in middle school to my ex-girlfriend that went like this. Roses are red, violets are blue, my heart is broken because of you. (laughs) Would you interpret that to be me claiming that the organ which pumps blood inside my body is now in multiple pieces because of a middle school girl? You quite obviously would not, because you know that it's poetry. It's not good poetry, but it is poetry nonetheless. So you just instinctively know my words are not meant to be taken literally, but instead are metaphorical. So they're true. I'm communicating something that is true, but if you take my words literally, then you're interpreting me to be saying something that I'm not actually intending to say. So your knowledge of the genre helps you understand how I want to be interpreted. Again, this is true of all writing, including Scripture. We have to seek to take the author as he or she wants to be taken, and that's how we respect biblical authority. We have to ask, how does this author want to be understood? I'll give you an example from Scripture now. In the book called Song of Solomon, Solomon says to his wife in chapter 7, verse 2, Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Is he saying that her belly button is a wine tap? And that her abdomen has somehow turned into grain with flowers growing out of it. Of course not. It's figurative, poetic language. This is ancient sexy talk. I don't know how or why it is, but I do know that this is ancient sexy talk. You contrast that with the book of Luke, where Luke begins his writings by saying he's interviewed eyewitnesses and he's writing a historical account of the life of Jesus. So we interpret Luke's writings as historical narrative. We want to take the author, to, to, we want to take them at their intentions of what they're trying to communicate. All right, so all of that brings us to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, I'd like for you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be some on the ends of the rows. Part of the reason that I want you to turn there is I'm going to now speed read Genesis chapter 1. All of it, including some of the beginning of chapter 2 because it's actually a conclusion to chapter 1. ...and I would invite you to be able to follow along with me. I want to read all of it because for the rest of our time... ...I'm going to reference some different things that are said in chapter 1. So this will be our anchor point for everything I'll talk about from this point forward. And I want you to have seen what the Bible says firsthand... I am sure that many of you have heard other people talk about what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. I want to make sure that we've read it now together so that everything we say about Genesis chapter 1 is in fact from Genesis chapter 1. And you know that I'm not just up here running my mouth. Genesis chapter 1, if you're not familiar with your Bible, it'll be somewhere around page 1. Let's read fast together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be the, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day And God said, "'Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of, the, beasts of the earth according to their kinds.' And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth.' So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, chapter 2. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Allow me to have a water break now. (laughs) What we know for sure is that what we just read together is an ancient Mesopotamian poem. It has refrains, repeated statements that are repeated as in a song. Here is the rough pattern. I'll put it up on the screen for you. The pattern of the poem is we've got announcement, where, God, uh, where and God said. We've got commandment, let there be. We've got separation, where God separated the day and the night, the water and the land, the animals and the plants. We've got a report, and it was so. And then we have evaluation, and God saw that it was good. Now here's where you get to the tricky part. <laughs> We're not exactly sure how we're supposed to interpret this style of writing. It's certainly a poem of sorts. Potentially, this genre is poetry that is meant to be interpreted literally. That's a viable option. The exact words are exactly what happened. Potentially, we're supposed to interpret it more like modern poetry, and it's more figurative, metaphorical language. Any time we're doing Bible interpretation, we want to allow the rest of scripture to interpret parts that seem confusing to us. And so as we look to see what the rest of the Bible has to say about how we might interpret Genesis chapter 1, there is still much debate among Christians as to how we're supposed to interpret Genesis chapter 1, multiple different conclusions about Genesis chapter 1. So what I want to do is give you very broadly some different views about creation. About evolution, about the age of the earth. Let me give you four teams and their views. I want to try to present them fairly. My hope is that I will present their strengths and their weaknesses in an unbiased way, and afterwards, you have no idea which one I hold to. If I do that, I will have succeeded. So let me, uh, and obviously, there's much more, much, much more to be said about all of this. You might think I don't portray your view exactly right and I would ask that in advance you forgive me as God in Christ has forgiven you so (laughs) here's number one it's a non-christian position but the first team the first view is naturalistic evolution this is evolution without God this is evolution as an explanation for everything strengths of this position why people why some people hold it is the observational evidence that seems to point to common ancestry. So when I say things like that, I mean things like the fossil record, biogeography, genetics. I'm not going to get into all that. I'm just presenting those as reasons why some people hold to this view. Now, weaknesses of this view, much of which we talked about in week one of our series... So, I won't go in on any of them as much as I would like to mention some of the weaknesses of this view of a, a evolution as an explanation of everything apart from God existing. Naturalistic evolution, some of the weaknesses are the cosmological argument that both we have something from nothing, as well as in this view, life comes from non life. And those are very unexplainable ideas in this view. Cell theory. Would be another weakness. With all of these, it's not that there aren't some answers or theories that that try to provide answers, but they are just challenges, they are weaknesses. So, cell theory is the well established fact that cells come from pre existing cells, except this once. Now, it's not that there aren't theories, there certainly are. It's just it is a weakness, it is a challenge. The teleological argument, the moral argument, the argument from desire, all of these we discussed in week one, more that you could be added here would be just human consciousness, the reliability of math, human language. All of these are challenges. All of them have some theories to answer them, but they are challenges nonetheless. And then biblically, the problems with this would be the entire Bible, all of it, every single bit of it. It starts with God, it ends with God, God's involved in all of it. You cannot square this with a Christian perspective at all. No one even tries. So quite obviously, this is not a Christian view, but it is a view that many people in our society hold. Hopefully, I've presented it fairly enough if it is your view. Number two, evolutionary creationism. This is sometimes called theistic evolution, this would be the idea that God guided a process of evolution, that evolution is the how behind God's creative work. People who hold to this view would point to places in the Bible, such as Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, God knit me together in my mother's womb. When the psalmist writes that, he's not saying that God worked outside of the normal biological ways that people come about, but he's saying that God was intricately involved, that God instituted and guided that biological process of human formation in a mother's womb. And people who hold this view would say, so when we are told that that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, the author might be speaking figuratively in the same way meaning that God brought man into being through normal biological processes. Some strengths of the evolutionary creationism view is in some ways the same as naturalistic evolution. It does hold to and agree with observational evidence that seems to point to common ancestry. And then it actually solves some of the more philosophical problems with naturalistic evolution. God as the great cause, God as the fine-tuner, God as the one who writes his laws on our hearts, and so forth. Now, the weaknesses with this view are mostly biblical, at least in my opinion. So when we look at weaknesses of someone who would say they're a Christian, who believes in evolutionary creationism, I think there are some significant challenges with the Bible. So such as, when did Adam and Eve appear? So the rest of the Bible, including Jesus and Paul, seem to say that Adam and Eve are historical people. So if God guided the process of evolution, then at what point did Adam and Eve come about? And in what sense are they the first humans? It's a challenging question. I think another weakness to this position would be the question, in what sense are Adam and Eve in God's image If other humans or close approximations have come and gone before them, how exactly are Adam and Eve, God's image bearers, distinct from other humans or close approximations that would be before and after? I think another challenge to this view is what exactly does the Bible mean when it says that sin brought death? Is that simply death in a a spiritual sense? The process of evolution necessitates death. So how does that square with the idea that sin brought death? And I'll come back to this in a second. But no matter what, we know that animals were eating plants before sin entered in Genesis 3. We already read that. God specifically says, here are the plants, you may eat them. So in some sense, death was already there because plants were dying. But it's still a weakness. And those are just a handful of the questions that I think you have to square with particular parts of the Bible if you hold to this view as a Christian. Again, hopefully I've presented them fairly. Number three, old earth creationism. Old earth creationism. There's a couple of ways that this view gets explained. One would be that potentially there's a long space of time between Genesis 1 verse 1 or maybe verse 2 and then all the rest of the six days or the seven days that are listed in Genesis Potentially, God created the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Long, 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 long amount of time. And then God creates. That would be what's often called the gap theory. A gap between God created the earth and then institutes the creative order that Genesis 1 lists, if we're to take Genesis 1 literally. Others who hold to old earth creationism would argue that in Genesis 1, the Hebrew term for days is eons. And one way of rendering that word day is actually epochs or ages. And so in this view, they would say that the seven days actually represent seven stages of creation. In other words, that the days of Genesis 1 are extremely long ages of time. And I've heard people try to say this could potentially overlap with some of the components of evolutionary theory. So those are the two kind of teams underneath that subheading of old earth creationism. Some strengths for this view is that it does align with the current scientific estimate for the earth as being 4.5 billion years old. That is the commonly held belief that earth is about 4.5 billion years old. That would explain how the Bible is consistent with that amount of age. Some weaknesses... If you believe in the gap theory, that there's God created the earth, there's a gap, then he seven literal days uh, created. Some of the challenges, more specifically, would be fossils. So the idea that we have fossils, such as the dinosaurs, that seem to predate humans by a significant margin. Now many in this view would challenge the dating, the dating system that we use. And they would simply say the dating system that we use is flawed and doesn't give us a correct measurement of of the space, of the date, of the time. But it is a challenge. It's a weakness to be sure. If you hold to the day age theory, believing that each of the, seven, uh, the six days of creation are long stretches of time, one of the weaknesses of that view is actually photosynthesis. So I don't know if you caught this, but as we read Genesis chapter 1, day 3 is where veg- vegetation is created. The sun is created in day 4. So if those are long periods of time and not literal days, it would mean there was an entire era of history where plants did not live by the process of photosynthesis. Now, all things are possible with God. So so we're not, I mean, we don't just dismiss it, but it is a challenge. You, You would certainly wonder why God would create plants to not do the things we know that they do now for a long, long time and then create the sun and then change how plants work. It's a challenge. I would argue it is a weakness of the view. Last one, number four, how you doing? Everybody good? Young Earth creationism. Young Earth creationism. These would be people who believe that the seven day creation period in Genesis chapter one is to be interpreted literally that the genre of poetry is to be still interpreted as matter-of-fact, straightforward, and literal, that the earth is only thousands of years old, and that exactly what it says in literal fashion is what God did. I do believe there are some strengths, and I do believe there are some weaknesses to this view as well. Some strengths would be the adulthood of Adam and Eve. So the Bible says that Adam and Eve were created... As adults, not as infants, not as babies. It says that God put plants and trees that would have the appearance of age, the appearance of maturity. So here's what I'm saying. If you showed up the day after Adam and Eve were created, they would look like, what, I don't know, 20, 30, 40? Don't know how old they were, but you certainly wouldn't think they were two days old. And you would look over and you would see a tree and you would say, Well, I I know that trees take 20 years to get that big. And then you would realize, no, that tree's only like three or four days old. And if there are rocks, what does a one-day-old rock even look like? That rock is going to look like it's been there for a long, long, long time, correct? And so this is just how people would say, no, if God created a world in which there are trees and plants and people, there's an appearance of age that you can't avoid and you can't deconstruct that to find out How would a rock look if it was even younger? It's a rock. A rock is there. It looks like it's been there for a long time. The tree looks like it's been there for a long time. I believe that to be a strength of this view. Those who hold to this view would also say that the flood in Genesis chapter 7 would have had profound effects on the fossil records and our entire dating system. And also in this view, uh, people existed alongside dinosaurs, which I don't include for any scientific reason. That just sounds awesome. So that's a strength to me for the view. I think that sounds great. That's just in there because of how cool it sounds. So, Weaknesses, young earth, creationism. <clears throat> uh, generally speaking, you just have any of what seemingly points to evolution as a process. And so all of those things need to be explained. But I want to be a little bit more specific. So more specifically, weaknesses of young earth, creationism, and again, Plausible answers to each of these, but their weaknesses, they're challenges. So one specifically, and someone even asked this in the question, is starlight. So for example, the Andromeda galaxy is 2.5 million light years away. So therefore the light from it that we see right now is 2.5 million years old. If creation is only thousands of years old, how are we seeing light that old? a challenge now might God have said star light earth plausibly but it is a challenge this uh this view also does require an explanation for the appearance that dinosaurs existed long before people so uh you run into some things like did God create the earth and throw some dinosaur bones way down there and if so why I have heard people say they believe that Satan put dinosaur bones really down deep to try to make us leave our faith. Which I don't find to be a good answer. Um, it's, I think, okay if you do, maybe. But maybe I'm not even okay if you think that's a good answer. I don't, I don't actually know. So there are some challenges. Here's what I, I do want to say this, though, and I'm going to get in a, a couple more challenges uh, for this view. But before I do, young Earth creationists tend to get dunked on and mocked in our society. They tend to be uh, marked as anti-science. People who interpret Genesis 1 literally are often called anti-science. But their stance is So long as they are confident the Bible is saying what they're interpreting it to say, that any time there's a conflict with Scripture and science, that science will eventually catch up with the Bible. That's where they land. And that idea is not totally baseless. As one example, for a long time, the dominant view was that our universe had no beginning and that Christians who said that our universe had a beginning were idiots and then in 1929 edwin hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies which provided empirical evidence that our universe sprang into being from quote a single point in the finite past end quote and everyone says oh my gosh it turns out our universe has a beginning and christians go we know we know so I want to be slow to mock and ridicule people who believe their interpretation of Scripture is correct. And upon that, just say, we think science will eventually adjust to what the Bible has to say. So this is actually an issue of interpretation of Genesis 1 and not how highly or lowly we hold science, more or less, and so to speak. There are some other weaknesses of the view, biblical ones, in fact. If we're strictly literal about the Genesis 1 text... Then there is a question of how there were days and nights before the sun was created. So days and nights are day one. The sun is created in day four. It's not unexplainable. It does just seem like maybe this isn't meant to be taken literally, some would say. And then another question that remains for everybody is, how is there no death until the first sin? Plants. Plants were eaten? Did bacteria die before? Did insects die before the first sin? Because if not, how in the world did mosquitoes not just ruin everything and everybody? Because mosquitoes are the worst. Okay, so every view has some strengths, some reasons why people might land there, and every view has some weaknesses or some challenges or some questions that can be difficult to answer. So hopefully we'll be gracious to people with whom we disagree. Let's debate ideas but not treat each other as though you're evil if you land in one of the views that we do not. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. I was hoping that would be what you said, but I didn't know. I really put myself <laughs> out there. So those are the broad categories. There are subcategories. You probably have more information than I presented here about why you land where you do. There are different nuances, but hopefully that gives you the idea. And there are, I mean, there are Bible scholars... There are Christian scientists who land in different places because of different things that seem more plausible to them, and that's okay. One of the things that I do want to caution you against is pitting God against science. So science, properly understood, is the developing understanding of the world God made. So let's make sure that we avoid what sometimes is called the God of the gaps, meaning when we don't understand how something works, then that's what God's doing. Uh, So for example, I have a friend who his son came home and said, Mom and Dad, where does the wind come from? The mom thought and remembered that Scripture says God is the one who sends the wind. And so she correctly said, God makes the wind blow. The dad Was sitting there thinking, Ah, well, uh, wind is actually when low air pressure and higher pressure—it's move—it's atmospheric differences in air pressure—and he felt trapped. I don't want to contradict my wife. I know that's what the Bible says, but also we know how wind works. And my point would be to say they are both right. God makes the wind, and He does it by air flowing from high pressure to low pressure. These are not competing ideas. We don't only need God when something is otherwise unexplainable. Otherwise, we're going to be hesitant to seek out explanations and further discovery. The primary means that God uses in the Bible are natural means. Now, obviously, sometimes he does things outside of natural means. But the primary way that God works all throughout the library of Scripture is natural means. As an example, this morning, we're gathered together. We believe that God is at work through his spirit in our lives, in supernatural ways, by us gathering this morning. But everything we do is going to be a, quote, natural mean. We're teaching from the Bible. We're singing together. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion and remember the body and blood of Jesus. These are all natural means that we believe God supernaturally moves through to bring about supernatural fruit in our lives. And this is the normal working pattern of God. Also, we are supernaturalists who believe that God sometimes does things that are not explained by natural means. So one of my favorite ways to think about this comes from a German mathematician-astronomer. His name is Johann Kepler. Um, He was a key figure in the scientific revolution. But one time he talked about his scientific work as, quote, thinking God's thoughts after him. I like that. We're thinking God's thoughts after him. We're discovering how God works, how he's created the world, and how he has designed it to go. All right, so hopefully you are left wondering which view I line up with, and if so, good. That was my goal. I did consider telling you, but to be honest, I mentioned it to some people in our staff this week, and immediately every single one of them wanted to debate with me, and I was just like, oh, I don't want these problems. So... uh, If you'd like to chat, I would be glad to, but I am not gonna say in front of a microphone where I land just because I don't wanna deal with it. I just don't wanna deal with it. And you can call me a coward if you want, that's fine. Uh, Again, our church does not have a particular team because we can see why people would land at the varying places that they would. Now, as a church, we do reject naturalistic evolution, but hopefully you you would know that and assume that. I would wanna end, though, by affirming some key points in the doctrine of creation. So what we learn for sure from what Genesis 1 is teaching us. And these would be that God is the main agent in creation, that nature is not the deciding power in existence, that God who created nature is, that he is creator and we are creation. We would want to affirm that people are God's special creation, that we are his image bearers on the earth. We have special dignity and worth compared to the rest of creation, But among people, we have equal dignity and worth, regardless of our skills, abilities, gender, race, socioeconomic status, or anything else that might separate us and make us seem to group. And without God, and I I keep saying this, and I think some of you aren't hearing what I'm saying, without God as the main creative agent, you can assert human rights, but you can't argue for it. You can assert it. You can say human beings have rights that should not be trampled upon, But it's really hard to argue. If someone disagrees with you, all you can do is just say it louder and hope you have enough power to make them shut up. To argue for it, to reason for it, at some point you got to track back to a God who has made human beings in his image. And therefore, in spite of the fact that we are different in, in intellect and talent and skill and on and on and on, in spite of that... We have equal dignity and worth because God has created us in his image. And that is the argument for it. And then lastly, we want to make sure that we're asserting that God made it good and that sin is our problem. Sin is the root problem with the world. So do we need better government? Yes. And do we need better parenting? Yes. And do we need whole families together? Yes. And do we need better education? Yes. And do people need role models? Absolutely. But each of these things are only dealing with problems at the symptom level. Sin is the root cause. And this is the story of the Bible. is God sending a Savior to fix what sin has broken here. To live righteously. To die for sin. Paying for it so that we can be forgiven. To raise from the dead. Proving that God accepted his sacrifice so that we can have victory over sin. And so, some Christians might disagree on different secondary issues like evolution and creation, but there is no disagreement that we need Jesus. That I need Jesus, and you need Jesus, and your kids need Jesus, and your spouse needs Jesus, and your roommates need Jesus, and rich people need Jesus, and poor people need Jesus, and Republicans need Jesus, and Democrats need Jesus, and everybody needs Jesus. And so while we may not have total certainty around secondary issues in our faith, there is total certainty around Jesus. And that seems like the right way for us to end. So we're going to end our time of teaching this morning, like we always do, by going to Jesus, to praise him, to worship him, to pray to him, to draw near to him. We'll take communion as we remember him and what he's done to pay for our sin and reconcile us to God. So let me pray for us. Um, God, thank you for the folks who sent in uh, all these questions. And I hope that that this uh, content was in some way helpful to them. And I pray that you um, would continue to be at work in our midst, helping us to disagree and debate lovingly with one another over secondary issues and to be united strongly over the primary things. That's where we want to land as a community. And so would you give us the humility to disagree kindly And then would you give us the faithfulness and perseverance to stick up for the things that need to be stuck up for and the wisdom to know which is which. So thank you for the time that we had to do all this whole series. Lord, I hope that you'll build upon it. Um, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us in our resolve and in our faith. God, that we don't simply believe things because we do, but there's substance underneath it. So may that be the thing that we take away from our past five weeks and even from today. So Lord, as we transition to respond now, we ask that you would send your spirit uh, to minister to us, that we would remember who you are and what you've done for us, God, that we would see your beauty in all of creation, that you are the sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the universe who has created everything that we see and experience, that we would stand in awe of you, that as large and big as you are, that you're mindful of us and would send your son to die for us to make us yours. So we thank you for this, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.